Hello, I'm Robert Congdon, Director of CMI-TV and Congdon Ministries International. In this video, we are continuing our series entitled The Tumbling of Calvinism's Eschatology. I'm often asked if eschatology, or the study of prophecy, is really significant. Isn't it just a secondary bunch of doctrines? While I once believed that, upon a careful study of various prime doctrines, I realized that prophecy is not only significant, but is one of the building blocks of doctrine. The late Dr. Robert Leitner, a well-known and respected theologian said, and I quote, eschatological interpretations have a definite bearing upon many of the other doctrines which one holds. One's entire system of theology, their view of history, their interpretation of scripture, their view of the church, and view of biblical theology is determined to a great extent by his view of eschatology." End quote. I thoroughly believe this, and for that reason, we'll continue our study by examining the biblical teaching of the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, in part one of our video series, we laid the groundwork for this study by demonstrating that contrary to Calvinism's teaching of a single general resurrection of all peoples, that is believers and unbelievers, just prior to the great white throne judgment, the Bible teaches that the resurrection of believers is an entirely separate event from the unbeliever's resurrection. In this video, we'll show why believers will not be judged at the great white throne judgment. Why believers will not be judged at the great white throne judgment. In doing this, we'll see that once more, that when compared to the Bible, Reformed theology and Calvinism's teaching of eschatology tumbles. Please join me now as we turn to Revelation chapter 20 and study the great white throne judgment and see why the scriptures teach that believers will not be judged there. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. When I was a child, I remember that every Saturday night my parents faithfully watched a television show that seemed, to me, quite boring. It always ended the same way with a criminal trial. Without variation, within the last 15 minutes of the program, the well-known defense attorney brought forth some surprise evidence that proved the defendant was innocent. During those days in TV land, there was great interest in trials and judgment, just as there is in our day. Join me now as we begin this study of the Great White Throne Judgment. 
I find people get excited over watching trials, for viewing brings real-life drama and excitement into their average daily life. It brings experiences from outside their, their experience. All the elements of drama are present. The battle of good versus evil. High tension and adversarial combat. The viewer, he listens attentively, eagerly waiting for some surprise to come from the testimony. And of course, there is the anticipation and uncertainty of the outcome. The final decision, guilty or not guilty. Recently, I've noticed a similar interest about judgment within our Christian world. With the spread of New Calvinism, more Christians are being exposed to their teaching of the Great White Throne Judgment, often called Judgment Day or the Day of Judgment. While their teaching is not new, for Reformed theology has always taught this, their widespread teaching about the Great White Throne Judgment is causing confusion among many Christians. Owing to a lack of teaching about eschatology or prophecy in our churches, Christians are unable to discern the errors in New Calvinism's teaching. Reformed theology and Calvinism teach that following the second coming of Christ, there will be a general judgment for all people. That's both the saved and the unsaved. John Piper, the elder statesman of New Calvinism, he proclaimed this teaching when he answered the question, who will be judged? His simple answer was, everybody will be judged. He further emphasized, and I quote, all people without exception will pass through the final judgment of God, end quote. Now, well-known Reformed theologian of the 20th century, Louis Burkhoff, summarizes the Reformed teaching when he says, and I quote, the Bible always speaks of the future judgment as a single event, the day of judgment. He continues by saying, it is abundantly evident that the righteous and the wicked will appear in judgment together for a final separation. A separation of the righteous and wicked cannot possibly be made until the end of the world. And then he adds, it's also perfectly clear that every individual of the human race will have to appear before the judgment seat. And he was speaking of the great white throne judgment. Does this mean me? While Reformed Calvinistic teaching is not supported by the Bible, it is creating unnecessary fear for many Christians who do not know their Bible. The second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 tells us, that fear is not to be a part of a Christian's life. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So recognizing this, it's our duty as serious students of the Bible to investigate this reformed doctrine of judgment and see what, if any place, a truly saved righteous believer has in it. In this video, We'll look at the Bible's teaching on judgment in order to understand the true purpose of the great white throne judgment and significantly what is its purpose and who will face that judgment. When we do this, we'll understand why a genuine believer in Jesus Christ need never fear that he or she will face judgment at the great white throne judgment. 
Our understanding begins with answering four key questions about biblical judgment. Our understanding of biblical judgment and the great white throne judgment begins by answering four questions about biblical judgment. The questions that must be answered are, first of all, why must there be any judgment by God? What is a biblical judgment? What elements must be present at judgment? And then we're going to focus on, really, what is the purpose of the great white throne judgment? I'm indebted to the writings of the late Dr. Herman Hoyt and the teaching of Dr. John Whitcomb for their help on this subject. We're going to begin with, why must there be any judgment by God? Many times I hear people say, if God's a God of love, why would he judge anyone? In a world increasingly being driven by emotions, this thought is common among many people today. If we would pause to consider, the very person rejecting a judgment by God can easily be shown that they believe in the need of judgment in some situations. The actions of men such as Hitler, Stalin, and many others of history, who've never paid any price for their evils, at least in this world, they need to be considered. What of their many victims? Should there not be some justice for them? Now, even in minor affairs of our life, people desire justice. For example, someone cuts you off on the road, nearly causing an accident, and you wonder, why isn't there a policeman to deal with them and bring justice for what was done to me? You see... A sense of justice lies within each of us. Yet when people consider an eternal life, or heaven, that is based on some form of justice, they believe that God should adhere to a lower standard than their own and not hold average people accountable for their sins. After all, nobody's perfect, right? In surveys conducted over the two recent decades, it's been found that 70 or more percent of people surveyed believe that there is justice and it will be in some eternal place like a hell. As we look at scriptures, we find others demanding justice also for evil. For example, in Psalm 94, the psalmist decries the prideful wicked when he says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? That's Psalm 94, verses 1 through 3. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, we see that Paul warns us that men should not be, and I quote, deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. If there's not reaping for evil in this world, where is justice? We also find that the character of God demands ultimate judgment. Moses tells us that God is a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. God himself declares this in Isaiah 46, verse 21, when he says, There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. 
There is none beside me. While many agree that God is just, liberal theologians would argue that his justice is overridden by his love and mercy, hence no judgment. The scriptures, however, declare a coming judgment involving the same God of love and mercy. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead. A final argument supporting the need of a biblical judgment is the demand of the cross of Jesus Christ. John says in verse 31 and 33, Now is the judgment of the world. And the context of this statement is the death of the cross, his coming death that he should die. Dr. John Whitcomb notes, and I quote, If the judgment of God fall on Christ who bore our sins, then surely it will fall on those who elect to bear their own sins. End quote. Therefore, there must be a biblical judgment of the injustice of the world and its inhabitants. So our next question really is, what is judgment? Having explained why there must be a judgment, we must now seek to understand what is judgment, and in doing this, we'll see why Calvinists are wrong in placing believers at the great white throne judgment. Our understanding of what is judgment begins by a brief look at the four words in the Bible that express judgment. Two are found in the Old Testament and two in the New. Sixteen times in the Old Testament, the verb shafat establishes or reflects a decision of judgment. The second word, mishpat, used 421 times, is a noun declaring a sentence or decision based upon a judgment. In the New Testament, krima is a noun used 28 times, meaning a sentence passed by a judge, a decree of a court, condemning that which is wrong. The fourth word, krisis, is a noun used 48 times, meaning to separate, to put asunder as a consequence of a judgment. Thus, these terms are used in a judicial process, involving the discernment of right and wrong that always results in an action, such as a sentence or a punishment. In each case, the consequence of the guilty judgment is a separation or tearing apart. With reference to people, we see in the Bible that judgment results in the separation of the soul from the body at physical death, or the spiritual separation of the soul from God. When used of a city or a nation, it speaks of the separation or destruction from the face of the earth of that city or nation. If we ignore this consequential action of separation in our understanding of judgment, we're going to miss a vital part of judgment. As I studied each of the cases of judgment involving these four words in the Bible, I find that separation and punishment are always the consequence of the guilty. After reaching this conclusion, I looked at other Bible teachers' writings. I've been amazed to find that they seldom discuss the actual characteristics or the steps that lead to a biblical judgment and its outcome. Furthermore, their definitions of biblical judgment are often weak or left to the reader to define. While they may talk about the last judgment, 
The support is based heavily upon Matthew 25, a passage that's focused upon the tribulation events and Israel. If you watch my video on the Olivet Discourse, you'll see where I support this fact that Matthew 25 focuses on Israel during the tribulation. Now, while these authors cite various New Testament references to individual accountability, they rarely use biblical examples of judgment to support their teaching. Therefore, I think it's essential that we look at the examples of God's judgments, and in doing this, develop our own biblical definition of God's judgment. To do this, we'll look at five examples of God's judgment in the Bible, and then develop a biblical definition of God's justice, of who is judged, and of when they are judged. Let us begin our determination of a biblical definition of judgment by looking at five biblical examples of judgment involving God. We'll see that in each example it follows a procedure that leads to the judicial outcome. That order consists of five steps. They are step one, the act or action committed by the offender. Step two, the examination of the offending action. Step 3, the application of a criteria or standard requiring judgment. Step 4, the actual judicial decision or judgment. And step 5, the carrying out of punishment with a resultant separation. In each of five biblical examples, the judge is the Lord God, or it could be the Lord Jesus Christ. And the defendant involves beings created by God. Our five examples taken chronologically are going to be Satan's fall, Adam's fall, the cross, the judgment seat of Christ, and the great white throne judgment. Let's look at our first example, the fall of Lucifer or Satan, as he was named after his fall. The first step is the act or action committed by the offender. In this case, it's Satan. For Satan, the act was his rebellion against God, his Creator and Lord. In this rebellion, he encourages a significant number of fellow angels to follow him. Step 2, the examination of the offending act, is presumed to have occurred in heaven. There we find that the actual time of the fall is not recorded in the Bible, but we can conclude that it took place after the creation of Genesis 1-1 but before Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Step 3. The criteria or standard requiring judgment is the glory of God. For Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Psalm 71.19 says, Thy righteousness also, O God, is very high, who has done great things. O God, who is like unto thee? Psalm 89.8 O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Put simply, the testimony of Scripture says that no creature can emulate the perfect Creator and God, and can act apart from His governance. Step 4. The judicial decision judgment was God's declaration of the ultimate destruction of Satan's power in Genesis 3.15, where we read, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, 
and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The enmity between thee and the woman is important, but more important is the enmity between the, thy seed, that's Satan's seed, and her seed, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the Lord Jesus Christ shall bruise the head of Satan, or destroy his power, but he shall bruise the Lord Jesus Christ's heel at the cross. Step 5. The carrying out of punishment with a resultant separation began at the cross of Jesus Christ, and the separation will take place when Satan is eternally placed, first into the bottomless pit, and later into the lake of fire, as we see in Revelation 20, verse 10. This is the final judgment for Satan, who will eventually be eternally punished and separated from God. Our second biblical example of judgment is Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. Here, step one, the act or action committed by the offender, Adam, is when he did eat, according to Genesis 3, verse 6, in the Garden of Eden. There he took of the fruit that he was commanded not to eat of, and he ate it. Step two, the examination of the offending action is when God asks, from Genesis 3, Hast thou eaten of the tree? Step three, the application of the criteria or standard requiring judgment is God's declaration prior to the offense when he said, Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Step four, the judicial decision or judgment is that Adam, according to Genesis 3, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Step five, the carrying out of the punishment with a resultant separation was Adam and Eve's physical expulsion from the Garden of Eden and from access to the Tree of Life. There also was a spiritual separation that occurred when the sin was committed for it created a spiritual death or separation from God. This separation continues in each human born from Adam and Eve. For we read in Romans 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now, I've hurried through these two examples because I want to focus on the next three, and I presume you have a certain familiarity with the first two examples. I believe the next three will clearly demonstrate why a true believer will never face judgment at the great white throne judgment. Thus, our third example occurs at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here the Lord God, that's God the Father, was the judge and the defendants, all of humanity, that was vicariously represented by the Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite God-man, according to Romans 5.18 and Hebrews 10.14. So the first step, step one, the actor action committed by the offender, it began with Adam and has continued to every human that was ever created. Therefore, according to Romans 5, verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. Step two. The examination of the offending action. 
Romans 5 verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The application of a criteria or standard requiring judgment was the law of God. Genesis 2 verse 17 says, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And that was speaking not only of physical death, but more significantly spiritual death. Step 4. The judicial decision or judgment. Again, Romans 5.19. Many were made sinners. And we are told elsewhere in Scripture, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, both spiritual and physical. Thus, all humans must pay the wages of sin, either by themselves, or they need to find an acceptable substitute to pay for their sins. The only acceptable substitute is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Step 5. The carrying out of punishment with a resultant separation. We read in Hebrews 9 verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. See, being infinite, Jesus Christ could pay the just penalty for all humanity in those three hours upon the cross. Now, we can't even fathom the enormity of his suffering with the eternal punishment of every human being upon him. The resultant separation of the judgment occurred between God the Father and God the Son on the cross, as the Lord Jesus Christ took upon him our sins. For we read in Mark 15, verse 34, Christ crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? By doing this, it means that for the believer who accepts Jesus Christ's substitutionary payment for their sins, there will be no separation. But for the one rejecting the gift of God, Christ's payment for their sins, the separation is eternal separation from God in hell. Now our fourth example takes us to the judgment seat of Christ, recorded in 2 Corinthians 5.10. The judge, or I prefer to say the examiner, and you'll see why in a moment, will be the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, But he that judgeth me is the Lord. And Paul was speaking of believers here. As we look at this judgment, we need to note the word judgeth, found in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Its Greek definition, we find it doesn't mean to judge as in a courtroom, Instead, it means to scrutinize, to investigate, to interrogate, or to determine. So literally, we could translate 1 Corinthians 4.4 as, He who is discerning me is the Lord. Now that changes the, the approach toward this whole passage of judgment. Notice further, Paul used the word Lord to signify his relationship to Jesus Christ. That is, he, Paul, is the Lord's bondservant. See that in Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.10. Thus, Paul is not going before a judge in a courtroom, 
but before his master that Paul chose to be his master. For a bondservant chooses to permanently make himself a servant of his master. Paul then notes that Christ is the one before whom we must all appear in the 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 passage on the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if we look at that verse, we find that we must all appear literally in the Greek is to be made known. So this is going to be a making known about us. Paul clearly defines the we in this passage that will be made known as all, and 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. In Paul's second letter to this group, he defines the we as being those that are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So therefore, the entire context of the Bema is that those who appear and something is being known about them are the saved in Christ. Therefore, while it's not a judgment, we're still going to look at it as five steps and see do any of those apply to the Bema seat of Christ. Step one, the act or action committed by the offender is not a crime, but merely the accounting of a bondservant, the believer, to his master, for his service to his master. In Romans 14, a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, the beam of Christ, the context is about brothers. We in Christ that, according to verse 12, shall give account of himself. That giving account is again the idea of a servant giving an account to his master. The writer of Hebrews also reminds believers that when we stand before the Lord, it will not be as a guilty one before a judge, but as a bondservant before his Lord. And as such, says in Hebrews 13, verse 5, let your conversation or conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you had. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. This isn't a description of offender before a judge, but rather a faithful servant giving account of his actions to his loving, eternal master. Step 2. The examination of the offending action is covered by 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where we read, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This examination, in quotes, will be an accounting of our actions as believers. Literally, we are to give words about ourselves. This is a time to discuss our stewardship as bond servants before our Master. As we review our stewardship, Christ will put its value to the test. 1 Corinthians 3, 8 and verses 11 through 15. This passage continues Paul's earlier thought that our Lord Jesus Christ, at his coming for us, shall also confirm you unto the end. Unto the end, he shall establish or make you firm unto the end. That, and that means with the purpose that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly, the Bema is a time that will prepare us, will establish us, and bring about the purpose of making us blameless 
in the day or the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ back to this earth with his bride. This accounting session is what completes our sanctification and makes us totally without blame. In order that we may serve our Lord and rule and reign with him for eternity as his blameless bride. Step 3. The application of a criteria or a standard requiring judgment. You see, for stewards, the criteria for evaluating actions of service, as well as motives, will be based on knowing and doing the Master's will, as guided by the Scriptures and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. This is the manifestation, according to 1 Corinthians 4-5, of the consuls of the hearts. Step 4. The judicial decision or judgment. For stewards, the judgment of this time will be reward or loss of reward. Time prohibits us from looking at the following passages to confirm this, but I suggest you take the list that's on the screen and carefully study it. Step 5. The carrying out of punishment with a resultant separation. Well, this is easy. The punishment or outcome? There is none. Hebrews 13, verse 5 reminds us, For he has said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. Remember, a biblical judgment must result in a separation. But there is no separation here. And Christ says he will never leave us or forsake us. So, at the best... You could say one is separated from some possible reward, but that is really stretching the idea. You see, there, there's no separation at the judgment seat or the beam of Christ. Therefore, it's not really a judgment. The bride is joined to him, according to John 14, 1 through 3. Therefore, the term judgment should never be applied to this event. It's not a final judgment. Ah, you say, my Bible says the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, it does. But the Greek word for this phrase is a single word, bima, a term used several times throughout the Bible. A bima is a physical location where a ruler or governor examines his subject or a sportsman is rewarded for running a good race. You see, for Christians, our judgment occurred at the cross when the Lord, as our substitute, paid the penalty and the separation owed to us. He paid for our sins. That's when our sins were judged and wiped clean. Therefore, there is no defendant here. For all who have received Christ as Savior, there is, according to Romans 8.1, now no condemnation, and that word there is judgment. There is no judgment to them which are in Christ Jesus. Once Jesus Christ is your Savior, there is no judgment and separation. Instead, there is a unique relationship between the Lord and his servant. And following our marriage to the Lord, we will be his bride. So it's strictly between bridegroom and his future bride. Remember, to his bride, Jesus Christ promised that where I am, there ye may be also. John 14, verse 3. No separation, no judgment to the believer. The catching up of the bride, that's church aid believers, to the Father's house will take place, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18, before the tribulation. And then each believer will be given the fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. 
Now, after the tribulation, Christ and his now bride will return to the earth to rule and reign together. Revelation 19, 6 through 11, and 20, verse 6. And they will rule together for a thousand years, and then will continue on into eternity in the new heavens and new earth. The Bema must occur between these two events. For, according to Revelation 19, his wife hath made herself ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is just prior to the start of the millennium. Uniquely, this event, the Bema, is for Jesus Christ's bride. It is not a judgment, but a time of review and accountability that completes the preparation of the bride for the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's better not to call it the judgment seat of Christ, and therefore, as you've heard me already, I often call it the Bema. Remember, it will be a time of closeness with our Lord who died for us and now wants only to make us ready to be his bride that will serve alongside of him forever. Now, keeping this in mind, let us look at our fifth example, the great white throne judgment. This judgment is described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Let's read it again. Beginning in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This great white throne judgment, don't confuse it with Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2 where there is a throne in white encircled by a rainbow. You see, the color in Revelation 4 around the rainbow tempered that throne to reflect mercy. But this one in Revelation 20 has nothing to relieve it of the awful witness of white and purity. There is no color but white. There is here in this throne in Revelation 20 no love, no mercy, no pity, no grace. John tells us that all judgment now has been committed to God the Son in John chapter 5, verse 22, where he says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Thus we conclude that Jesus Christ himself will be the judge at the great white throne judgment under the authority of God the Father. It is most appropriate that the Lord judges. For remember, he is the Son of Man, John 5.26, and is most qualified to judge the dead, small and great, of verse 12, Revelation 20. Remember, it's he who offers salvation and forgiveness to whomsoever will come. As we will see, these being judged are there because they rejected Jesus Christ and his outstretched hands of grace. This whole picture here in Revelation 20 is a solemn setting, one for which even the earth and the heaven fled away, verse 11. As was shown in part one of this series, the first resurrection was completed, 
And now comes those of the second death based on the chronology of verse 5. Also, remember the term dead often refers to the unsaved. For believers' bodies are asleep in the Lord before resurrection. They weren't referred to as dead. These dead are resurrected, though, to the second death. Since they sinned in their bodies, so too they will be judged as complete people with eternal bodies. Notice, Revelation 20 says that they are standing, again suggesting the idea they have risen up to resurrection. All right, step one, the act or action committed by the offender. We'll find that the charges or action are their works and their life choices before their death. Clearly, God knows everything a person does in life, even their thoughts and words. Step two, the examination of the offending action. Their actions or works will be examined before God from the record book of their lives. The book of life is opened, as are the books, plural, of their work. The book of life is a record of all those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior and have eternal life. Therefore, in reality, the act or action committed by the offender was to reject Jesus Christ's gift of eternal life. To receive, they neglected to receive him as their Savior. Notice in the examination of the offending action, in verse 12 and 13, we see that according to their works is repeated twice. Excluding the Bema, which really isn't a judgment. All other examples of biblical judgment in the Bible involve works of men or of Satan. Thus, God's judgment is based upon one's acts, while salvation is based upon faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, for some there will be a great record of their guilt, for others less so, but all will have failed by rejecting Jesus Christ. Psalm 53 verse 3 tells us, Every one of them has gone back, they are altogether become filthy, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3.12 tells us, They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. All of us, both saved and unsaved, have selfish motives. The difference is, those who have received Christ have been washed of their sins. But those that have refused Jesus Christ's gift of salvation, they are also refusing to give glory to God. The greatest sin of all is the rejection of God's gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. To not receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Step three is the application of a criteria or standard requiring judgment. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Those who are those who have eternal life, those are believers. They have eternal life with him. But then we read that he, in verse 36, that believeth not the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Over in Romans chapter 2, the criteria is applied to the examination for those who are given the law. It says, will be by the law. 
For those who do not have the written law, the criteria will be the law that's written in their own hearts. That's their consciences. In other words, the law will be compared to their works and shows that they are guilty. Step 4. The Judicial Decision or Judgment A decision or judgment will be declared based upon the evidence. That decision is guilty. Again, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Notice at this throne, there's no advocate here for the guilty. There is no mercy or grace, for the time of such is well past. Step five is the carrying out of punishment with a resultant separation. The sentence and its outcome will be carried out. Eternal separation from God and eternal torment in the lake of fire, which God originally prepared for Satan and his angels. This is the second death, eternal separation for those who elect to pay for their own sins and reject the Lord Jesus Christ's offer of salvation. Sadly, those who profess to believe but did not do so with their hearts, in other words, a head belief, a knowledge, a head belief that Jesus Christ lived, walked, died on the cross, and rose again, perhaps, but haven't a heart, faith, and trust and acceptance of him as their Savior. The Lord tells us for them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's Matthew 7.23. We must never forget, and I quote Dr. Herman Hoyt here, that this punishment is divine in origin, for it is God who inflicts it. Luke 12.5, Hebrews 10.27, verses 30-31, to 31, and Hebrews 12.29. It is an eternal in duration, for there the fire is not quenched, Matthew 25.46 and Mark 9.44. And this punishment is excruciating in character, for their worm dieth not. Mark 9.44 Ceaselessly the memory taunts the soul for failure to heed the call of the Savior. Luke 16.24-31 Surely these thoughts shall drive us to share the gospel of salvation to all we know and to all that we meet the good news of the gospel of salvation that an individual does not have to face this great white throne judgment if they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Having considered these five examples and focusing in on the Bema and the great white throne judgment, let us consider if Reformed theology and New Calvinists could be right that they are one and the same judgment. A judgment for all people, saved and unsaved. Most Calvinists, I find, avoid a careful comparison of these two judgments. They tend to lump them together under the labels, the last judgment or judgment day. Like much of their eschatology, they merely make general statements and avoid the details, the details which the Bible does give. Since a careful study of the Bible and prophecy, it would cause their theology to tumble. They must minimize studies of eschatology and latter-day events. But biblicists, they stress that a study of eschatology, it's vital to understanding our God, his character, and his plan of history. 
Now, let us do a careful comparison of the Bema and the Great White Throne Judgment. At the Bema, those present are in Christ. At the Great White Throne Judgment, those present are the dead. At the Bema, those there are motivated by their love and led by Scripture and the Holy Spirit to do God's will. But in the Great White Throne Judgment, they are they demonstrate their prideful self-effort and their works done in the flesh. At the Bema, the reward, if you will, eternal life and rewards for faithful stewards at the great white throne judgment. The outcome is eternal death and separation in the lake of fire. At the Bema, those present have eternal fellowship with God. At the great white throne judgment, those present have eternal separation from God. Clearly, we have two distinctly separate events and groups of people separated by a thousand years, according to the scripture. To place Christians at the great white throne judgment is a complete misunderstanding of judgment and its resultant separation. In addition, it is a complete misunderstanding of the purpose of the great white throne judgment. Both new and classic Calvinists are wrong, for they don't understand the purpose of the great white throne judgment. Because they believe that God predetermined whether or not one will be saved, they conclude that the great white throne judgment serves as a confirmation, demonstrating God's wisdom in choosing some individuals to be elect while rejecting others. So really, for the Calvinist, the great white throne judgment is merely, really the time to demonstrate that the elect really were the good people, and the non-elect, uh, they weren't, and therefore deserve not to be made elect. Their erroneous interpretation of this doctrine of election has forced them to this definition of great white throne judgment and to unite the Bema with the great white throne judgment. You see, they believe the sole purpose of history is to demonstrate God's redemption of the elect. Hence, all of history, past, present, and future, is to reflect on God's choice of the elect. This is why Reformed and Covenant theologians have written little about heaven and eternity. Their very eschatological system rejects a place for Israel and the church as distinct entities and they reject them as being two separate groups throughout eternity. Furthermore, their theology has been largely shaped in reality by Neoplatonic Greek philosophy that rejects anything physical as being good. Hence, there cannot be a physical, material new earth with righteous, resurrected beings dwelling on it. They also reject the possibility of a literal new Jerusalem on earth. By contrast, Biblicists reject Reformed theology with its Neoplatonic Greek philosophical influences. We take the Bible literally and anticipate the new heaven, earth, and Jerusalem as being real, physical places, and we recognize distinctly different purposes for Israel and the church in eternity. 
The great white throne judgment is merely one more step in God's plan to bring about his plan of history. Instead of God's purpose of history focusing solely upon humanity's redemption of the elect, we understand that God uses history to progressively manifest his attributes to his praise and glory. You see, this is reflected and is crucial in looking at the timing of the great white throne judgment. It comes after the millennial age and before the creation of the new earth and heavens. Thus, God allowed all of man's history to demonstrate that only he, the righteous God, is capable of ruling for eternity. Throughout history, man could claim he was guiltless because it was his heritage. It was the environment. Others failed him. Satan made him do it or countless other excuses. The millennium is therefore necessary to eliminate all those excuses. For in the millennium, the environment is perfect. There is no Satan to tempt man. There are righteous people all around him. You see, the millennium proves the problem is within man, not outside of him. Like Satan before him, man rebels against God and God's ways. In Proverbs 14, verse 12, we read, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Rejection of God's way and following man's way results in the great white throne judgment. You see, man left to his own thinks he has the better way than God. For salvation, one must recognize they don't have the better way. They have to give up trying to earn their salvation. Instead, in humble, repentant faith, turn to God and accept his gift, a gift that isn't worked for, a gift given in grace by God of salvation. Now, certainly mankind's redemption is an integral part of demonstrating God's attributes, but there is far more. Therefore, the great white throne judgment is but one of many events that God will use to demonstrate or manifest his attributes. The great white throne judgment also will demonstrate to all created beings that God is righteous. This is very important to a just God. He wants all creation to understand why he consigns some to an eternal place of torment and others to eternal fellowship with him. The great white throne judgment will demonstrate to the unbeliever why he is condemned. Their own works will reveal the justness of their eternal state. Finally, it will reveal an individual's personal choice to rebel against God's will, to rely on their prideful and self-centered works, and to reject God's Son. All will acknowledge that God is just and righteous. Isaiah tells us in chapter 26, verse 9, that when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. To those who have received his Son as Savior, God's attributes of grace, mercy, love will be equally manifested. When the unrighteous have been removed to the lake of fire, God will proceed with his plan as he creates the new heavens and earth for purposes that go well beyond what the scriptures reveal or we can even imagine. Notice carefully, the righteous, saved believer 
already understands these truths and has no need to have them shown to him at the great white throne judgment. For he has already recognized the worthlessness of his own works, that nothing he could do could restore his relationship to God. He has understood that God's justice loomed before him, and only in the substitutionary death of the Christ could he experience God's mercy and grace. His judgment was complete at the cross. Salvation need only to be received by faith as a free gift in order to receive eternal life and escape the judgment of the great white throne judgment. God's love wouldn't put him through such a thing. Would a God of love judge and punish people? Yes. But only a God of love and grace would take the time to explain to the unsaved why they must spend eternity in the lake of fire, that it was their own choice. The books of the great white throne judgment will surely include the many times that individuals rejected the light that would bring them to salvation through his Son. For we read in the scripture that God is a God of long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Second Peter 3, 9 tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Never forget that our God concludes the scripture with this. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And then John ends, saying, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You will only have to appear at the great white throne judgment if you choose to reject God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ his Son. For those of you who have received Christ, the good news is you will never have to face God as judge, for you are in Christ, and there is no condemnation or judgment for you. Now, until the next program in our series, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we will see you either here or in the air. <laughs>